welcome, folks. It's Distazapod. Let me tell you, I'm feeling pretty good. That gigantic beginning of May fulfillment is finally over with. In fact, by the time you're hearing this, you might have already gotten your packages, which would include the Glow Dino, um, any store orders, and Action Figure of the Month for May. Now, we're not going to talk about that last thing right now because we don't want to sort of spoil it for people, but needless to say, a huge amount of work has been completed, and I can finally clear the deck and uh, just rest a little bit. So let's do some Q&As, and uh, I'll open up with a little news. It's the Stasipod. So like I said, that big chunk of orders uh, is finally done, or as of today anyway, it's all packed up, it's just waiting for USPS to come and claim it. Um, things will be rolling out in a little bit of a staggered fashion. Uh, we've broken this up into three days of different shipments, that's how large our uh, sort of amount of orders was. Truly record setting, big shout out to Jules who came in and helped throw some uh, labels on all of the hundreds and hundreds of packages. Um, so hopefully you guys are getting or uh, already have these items. I hope they make you very happy. The Glow Dino is really fantastic. I will have an official release for the Glow Dino um, sometime in May, uh, but more generally, here's what I think is gonna happen. I'm actually gonna close the store for maybe a week. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> uh, I really, really need a little bit of a break. Um, so I'll probably close the store and do a floor-to-ceiling inventory, which I've been threatening to do for a long time but haven't had the time. So that's going to happen sometime soon. Uh, I don't think we're going to do a release until the end of May, but I do have some restocks and some things I need to sort of refresh the website with. Um, least of which would be a couple pieces of postcard art from Gavin and, uh, you know, updates to the story so far. So those will probably happen in the near future. Uh, I would think in the middle of May at some point I'll turn the store off and uh, just have a little bit of a breather. Hopefully the pool will be open and I can just chill by that. And, uh, and then we'll gear up for something at the end of this month. And it's actually very interesting. I find myself in a position I'm not in often. I don't know what the next signature Night of the Slice drop item is. I know I have a lot of uh, sort of um, material styles and uh, second chance items. I got to extend uh, some offers to Action Figure of the Month patrons, you know, to uh, catch up on months they may have missed. But I don't know what our next sort of big star is. Um... And that's kind of a fun feeling because uh, typically I have everything planned out for, you know, years at a time. Um, so I'm just going to sort of allow myself the rare opportunity to kind of kick back and, you know, think or avoid thinking about what's next and we'll just figure it out. So I think we'll have a, a big uh, event at the end of this month. Um, I don't yet know if that sort of theoretical fundraising thing is going to kick off in May. Um, I, I'm just not going to commit to anything for the next week or two and uh, really have a sort of rest period and come back, uh, you know, with a little fire in my gut. And I think that'll be good. Now, moving along to questions, what I want to do when it makes sense is sort of highlight a single question that I think is really good and that uh, requires a deep dive at the beginning of every episode. And uh, this week, that was provided by our friend, Alan Gadbois. And he says, how close can an independent toy company make an homage color without being sued for copyright infringement? Um, this is a fantastic question. I love talking about these things. Um, I'm gonna lay out what I think with the caveat that I am not a lawyer. And uh, I fully expect our good uh, residential lawyer friend, Mark Mosman, will chime in and maybe give us some counterpoints uh, after this episode. That would be great. Um, maybe use the uh, voicemail feature on Anchor. 
I'll walk you through that, Mark. I think it'd be good. It'd be a nice segment. Uh, but here's uh, to my limited non-legal professional knowledge uh, the reply to this question. A color combination cannot be uh, sort of copyright enforced. So, um, you know, uh, Mattel, I think, probably has some of the most used color ways imaginable, right? You know a, a toy if it's colored like a He-Man color scheme from a mile away. You know when other independent creators are sort of using that palette and, uh, you know, um, making a, a sort of homage to that character. Um, but Mattel cannot copyright uh, that sort of peach color, that pale brown color, the uh, slightly warmer orange color. You know the sort of, I, I mean, I'm trying to describe colors. You should just look at a photo, obviously. Um, there's nothing enforceable to that combination of colors. Um, you know, colors sort of have no ownership. Anybody can use them. And uh, it's also would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to prove that um, there was an intention with color selection to uh, sort of confuse the marketplace about, um, you know, uh, ownership of a character. However, when you are proving a case of infringement, uh, there are there's something called points of similarity, which is one of the burdens of proof to uh, sort of convince, you know, uh, a judge that there has been sort of intentional uh, malfeasance. And points of similarity could be, conceivably, uh, the color scheme that you select. Now that by itself is probably not enough to uh, convince a judge of anything and get a ruling in your favor, but uh, it is... It could be something added to a laundry list of a case being built against you. So if you have a, uh, you know, a muscle-bound barbarian, that would be one point of similarity. If you have the exact same color scheme, that would be another point of similarity. If you have a shield, an axe, and a sword, and they look very much like... Uh, Masters of the Universe versions, that's another point of similarity. And so this case is built with all these, you know, different things that could not conceivably be a coincidence or be an independent creation. There is also sort of like nuance that you can have as a creator uh, that could offer an argument in your favor, if not outright protection. Uh, you know, typically like small fan operations uh, are not going to really bear the wrath uh, in a courtroom um, you know of against a sort of you know worldwide mega conglomerate company if somebody is truly a fan kind of making things one at a time and you know uh, obviously a fan of the brand that's a, a factor that is sort of going to be weighed um in the, uh, the infringement case. Independent creation is also a, a really, um, you know, an important distinction here. And a lot of times that's what uh, copyright infringement claims come down to. Uh, I, myself, have been accused of plagiarizing other people's designs, um, particularly from people that I didn't know existed, never saw any of their work, didn't follow them on any social media accounts, X, Y, and Z. This comes with the territory, you know. If you exist long enough and you're on social media and you are doing well, you know, your business grows and doesn't go away, um, inevitably these things pop up. People come out of the woodwork to take shots or to, you know, cast dispersions. Ultimately, none of this stuff ever bubble, bubbles over so far, thankfully. Uh, because of independent creation. There can be two individuals in this world who come up with a similar idea 
and uh, bring it to market independent of knowing about each other's stuff. If I'm not mistaken, this is the defense that George Harrison used when he was being sued by a music publishing company for the song My Sweet Lord, uh, which um, which I've talked about previously on here. Um, you can just Google My Sweet Lord, George Harrison, uh, you know, infringement. Very, very fascinating case in copyright and how this stuff uh, plays out. Now, George Harrison's defense was, uh, I did not steal this song. I'm George Harrison. I'm in the Beatles. I'm a multimillionaire. I've written hundreds of songs. I have no reason to steal a song. Uh, It is an independent creation. It sounds exactly like this other song, which is He's So Fine, I believe by the Ronettes. Um, but you know, that, that doesn't mean, uh, this is a calculated ill, uh, you know, with ill intent. This is just simply independent creation. Now I have seen, um, once or twice I've seen other people do, uh, food themed tokusatsu characters on their Instagram. Uh, Somebody was doing sort of hand-drawn art, and I saw another person doing, like, kind of, like, photo collages of this idea, which is similar to Knights of the Slice. Um, But for me, clearly it's independent creation. Um, And if it wasn't, I'm not sure there's a whole hell of a lot I could do. If somebody was utilizing the name Knights of the Slice as they created art or characters like that, that would be a problem. I would probably have to take action on that in order to preserve my own ownership of the mark and of the copyright. Um, And there's various options in which to take action. There are some nuclear options and there are some like, uh, you know, firm but pleasant ways to go about it. But the best defense to those sorts of things is to not dwell in a pastiche sort of concept, which I believe food-themed tokusatsu is not really an enforceable, unique spin that I've created. So that's why I don't iterate a lot on the food theme. You know, like a lot of people say, oh, we should have a giant pizza slice villain or, uh, you know, a subway uh, kaiju monster. And to me, I've conscientiously avoided all of those next step ideas that are, you know, seem like pretty apparent ways to graduate the idea of a food-themed tokusatsu. I've avoided all of that because it's not very unique and ultimately, well, one, it's, it's sort of creatively unfulfilling for me, but two, it's not very enforceable. So imagine a world where Knights of the Slice, you had the first night and then we went to a ice cream villain and then we went to uh, a Taco Tuesday terrorist. And then basically the line became sort of food fighters and every single character was a pun on food and, you know, represented a different meal, X, Y, and Z. I could have had, you know, a good five, six years of business there, just iterating on that one idea. And inevitably, any number of other toy creators would have come out with food theme uh, characters, potentially threatening uh, what I built with my brand. Now let's look at Nice of the Slice in its reality. We have a tokusatsu live-action kung fu main character. We have a decrepit robot with his parts breaking down. We have the vector jump armor. We have a man in a suit. We have, you know, uh, a robotic ninja. We have a tiny frog with a giant uh, metal gauntlet. All of those things are, you know, the sort of uniqueness of the brand and Nice of the Slice. So if somebody came out and made a character that, you know, uh, was similar to each and every one of those characters, then you know it's not a case of sort of independent creation. That is somebody sort of purposefully infringing on the universe that I've created. So, you know, the diversity of characters and avoiding overuse of other people's color schemes 
have really helped define Knights of the Slice very clearly in the space as, uh, you know, a creation by me and, uh, you know, a, a sort of expression uh, that's very varied uh, with lots of different uh, styles and characters and color schemes. So, um, really long-winded response to that. Hopefully, I was uh, not too egregious on the legalese part of it, and I expect to hear from our, uh, you know, loyal lawyer listeners on that regard. But hopefully, that answers the question. Um, there's nothing sort of intrinsic in a selection of colors that is in and of itself trademarkable or patentable or copyrightable. It is the sort of, you know, the bigger picture that uh, is the IP that can be owned. Okay, now, to our regular questions. Thank you for that wonderful question, Alan, by the way. Mike Johnson, what is a movie, song, book, or game you feel took way too long to get around to? Mine is the Dune series. Very glad to hear you ventured into the deserts of Arrakis. Always a wise choice. Uh, For me, it is Dungeons & Dragons, which I did not play until I was in my 30s. I grew up in the satanic panic in a very religious household, so it was absolutely not to be allowed. Um, you know, I, I had no idea or any concept of what AD&D was, only that it was pure, a direct portal to Satan. Um, many years later, as I was, uh, had a roommate, Steve Vera, who is arguably the best dungeon master in the world, and uh, ironically grew up in a same strict religious household, but was allowed to play D&D. Um, I got to experience this, and and honestly, um, it would have, you know, one, I think, being a preteen and a teen, having D&D as an outlet would have stopped me from doing stupid shit like smoking cigarettes, stealing cigarettes and reselling them to my friends, uh, drinking, chasing girls, all the stuff that got me into trouble uh, in those formative years. I could have been sort of hanging out and, and flexing creative muscles instead and writing stories and campaigns. And, and uh, you know, I was really starved for something like that. There was not, um, you know, there was no sort of outlet for fantasy back then. I mean, you had plenty of books and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I always wanted to sort of create a world for myself, which I think present day I have. Um, but it was... Uh, you know, this could have filled a hole that I was really looking for. And I wish I had been playing it for years and years. I'm very happy to do it now. I actually have a wonderful ongoing weekly game. And for the first time uh, in, you know, 18 months or whatever, we got to play in person. At least some of us did this past Saturday. It was easily the most fun I've had in uh, more than a year's time. So. Um, I, I think that's the big one for me. I really wish I had, uh, known or ventured into or absorbed myself in AD&D a long time ago. Moving along to Charles, when I was in Hong Kong a couple years ago, I bought a bunch of Legos and figure art knockoffs that ended up being just as nice as the real deal. Have I ever encountered this phenomenon? Uh, yes, I have. And, and likely what you are buying is actually real product from those companies or rather from the factories those companies use that are simply ran during the off hours put into uh you know non-specific packaging and sort of sold in the black market Uh, a lot of times these factories that are making legit product are also selling it uh on the side um so you know uh I can't speak to your specific experience, but that is definitely something that comes up. Bootlegging also, you know, there's a wide variety of quality you're going to get. Some operations are really, really precise 
and make product that could fool you side by side. But um, yeah, I think that that's more likely uh, the situation there. I would say ultimately you do get what you pay for. And uh, I don't recommend that people sort of buy blatant bootlegs uh, on eBay or Amazon. If the price is too low, there's definitely a reason for that. Now, I do purchase quite a bit of bootleg goods from time to time, but it is purely out of a sort of production curiosity. I want to see what materials they're using. I want to see, uh, you know, their techniques. Um, so for historical reasons, I do sort of break that rule. And, uh, you know, I have a little bit of a stockpile of these things. But uh, I really think uh, if you guys like the good stuff and you want it to continue, avoid, you know, uh, circumventing the proper channels and, and to save a couple bucks. Ryan Rusby's got a great question that actually has a pretty precise answer here. So thinking back on your own story, when do you think the right time to officially become a business for an aspiring artist as I sell their work or collections on the side of a day gig. Are there any advantages to taking that step early or is it something to best put off until the income from the art hits a point where the laws say you have to become a business and must do the paperwork? Um, great question. Let me clarify a couple things here. There is no sort of, you never have to become a business. Um, I, I, you know, there's no scenario in which you are informed you must sort of incorporate and do those things. Uh, as I just explained to a good friend of mine who was looking to incorporate, uh, there are two types of citizens in this country. There are corporations and there are people. And you are treated much better as a corporation than you are as a sort of person or an individual by standards of the law. This may seem, uh, I don't know, like hearsay or a, a crazy revelation, it is 100% true. So it is a good idea to incorporate, but I do think that there are specific triggers you should look out for and you should not really be thinking about incorporating uh, until you meet this certain criteria. If you have long-term, somewhat stable employment where you're working 40 hours a week and you get a salary, uh, I don't think you really need to incorporate. Part of the reason uh, for incorporation is about the tax burden. And if you have a full-time job, you're already getting your taxes taken out of payroll and uh, your social security and all those things. And it's already being sort of uh, handled for you on the employer side. So there is actually minimal benefit to incorporating, assuming, you know, you have... Uh, you're not earning more on the side than you are at your core job. If you get paid $75,000 a year from working for, you know, um, Amazon or whoever, and you're making 10 grand on the side selling resin cast action figures, there's no reason to incorporate. It's, you know, in my opinion, it's not going to do anything for you. Uh, if you are selling $100,000 worth of merchandise, through uh, an Amazon store, and you make, you know, uh, $50,000 working at the local car dealership, um, you may want to re rethink, <laughs> you know, your day job altogether, um, because I think there's going to be a much bigger benefit for you being a sole proprietor of an LLC um, than there is being a full-time employee of somebody else and also making all this untaxed income on the side. If you are a freelancer uh, and you've survived for you know any amount of time doing that and you intend to continue doing it, you should absolutely incorporate, no question there. Um, the amount you're paying in taxes is going to be astronomical as an individual compared to what you're gonna pay as a corporation. There is also uh, the question of deductibles. So, uh, you know, I deduct everything that relates to the business that I'm in. And my business is toy making and entertainment and comic books and writing. So guess what? Everything that falls under that banner is tax deductible for me. It's a complete write-off. So I go see a movie. That is tax deductible. I buy a comic book at a store. That's tax deductible. I buy toys on eBay. 
Those are tax deductible. Those are research samples. So you, you start to see that if you have a corporate entity, uh, a good portion of your daily life can be subsidized by that entity because it is relevant to your output. Um, so I, I think that the sort of line in the sand is, you know, are you making more money on the side gig, on the creative pursuit? And is it likely to continue that way? Another thing you don't want to do is sort of show consecutive years of losses as a corporation. You don't want to sort of like start a corporation and then just show seven years of losses and write off all your toys and video games and things like that. That is going to attract the attention of the IRS. You're going to get audited pretty quick. But if you start your corporation and you have profit every year, and more importantly, you pay the government taxes based on that profit, preferably in a quarterly estimated fashion, rather than waiting for once a year, uh, you're going to be fine. And you're going to have a lot more benefits that come along with that. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Just like with legal advice, uh, I'm not a CPA, so you should always consult professionals. But that's sort of how I've navigated this space. And I would say uh, there's no there's going to be very little benefit if the revenue generated from your side business is not uh, significant. Next up, we've got a question that doesn't require a lot of brain power, thankfully, uh, but that's not a bad thing. Tim Wilkins. Speaking out of pure fantasy, cost and sales factor aside, if you had the opportunity to create a fully painted zoner capsule, what kind of deco would you choose? Um, I think I would do a Batman-inspired homage. Um, you know, and I don't know if that means black and yellow or sort of blue and gray, uh, but that's one that has kind of been floating around my head for a while. I don't know that we'll get to it. As I've stated before, the capsules don't sell particularly well, and I do have a lot of inventory still. Um, I think there is one final capsule to reveal. Um, but in any case, that's the one I think I would go with. Gordon McKinnon Hall, with the arrival of Sen 5, how soon might we get a story update on his adventures? Is it an unpainted test shot enough to inspire new stories, or will the arrival of paint samples be what inspires you to put pen to paper? Uh, so having this test shot that I shared with you guys has definitely inspired where I think the direction of the Sen series needs to go. Um, this could change, but right now I'm feeling like the best avenue for storytelling is to consider Sen 5 one of the Sen series. And so... Potentially, every release of this character would be a different number designation. So we'd have Sen 10 and Sen 7 and X, Y, and Z. But Sen 5 is sort of specifically the one that is highlighted in that uh, Tales of Pangaea Island mini story that you guys got as a free download for backing the campaign. Um, so I do have sort of specific story needs for Sen's. I do think there will be a designation, and um, I guess the soonest you'll see these is probably whenever the first painted style debuts, which is looking like sometime this summer. Roy Simmons has a really excellent question here. These are all pretty stellar questions, but this one is particularly important. Uh, with rising prices of resin and plastics, is a price point increase for Action Figure of the Month inevitable? Fantastic question. So, one, let's have one assumption here that we all agree on. Prices are only going to go up. This has been the case since I started in the industry regarding plastics and toys and things like that. I've never seen a price dip uh, any time in the, let's see, coming up, uh, getting close to 20 years in the business. So, um, prices are only going to increase, and they're going to increase by a couple cents every year. If we do truly have a sort of crisis a new Cold War between China and the U.S., which I don't think we're going to have for different reasons, um, 
then yes, there will be a dramatic sort of uh, tightening of these things. Uh, what I did strategically um, was this past January when we switched Action Figure of the Month up from a sort of enrollment through crowdfunding to Patreon was to increase the price to cushion the increase of plastic cost increases throughout the next couple of years. My hope is I can keep $30 as the Action Figure of the Month price locked in for a very long time because it was already sort of padded uh, for future inflation, if that makes sense. And really, we're talking about cents, right? Probably tens of cents. Uh, but that does add up when you're ordering a couple hundred of this figure, a couple hundred of that figure. You have a couple thousand being shipped over and air freighted. Um, you know, I, I sort of constructed this big jumping off point, getting everybody onto Patreon with this in mind, because I don't see any relief or any cost going down on my production anytime soon. Hopefully it will stabilize. My prices have been pretty stable over the past six years. Um, but, you know, you nailed it perfectly. The These things are only going to become more expensive to make and to manufacture. Um, my hope is we got a couple years lead time at this $30 price point, and I do not have to make adjustments to that in the near future. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Let's hope it goes down that way. Sean Houlihan, seeing Sen5 in hand is amazing and I'm excited for his release. Not to pry too much, but have we seen all his accessories? Uh, no, you have not. Um, people have not seen all of the features and accessories for Sen5, nor have they for Chromega. Uh, I do like to preserve secrets and surprises and, and make sure that every new product that goes out to you guys contains at least one thing you weren't anticipating. Because uh, really, at the end of the day, that's all I have is the surprise and the marketing here. So um, let's hope that uh, the surprises stay intact and you are uh, you receive it in a pleasant manner. Next up, our buddy Phil Barrara. What do you do to relieve stress? Lately, I've been using stress release gummies and changing eating habits, but since you have more knowledge on healthy eating and lifestyle, I would like to hear what you recommend. Please forgive if this seems redundant. I do remember you've said to avoid sugar, keep your phone in a separate place in the house before bed. Uh, always happy to touch base on what are the best practices that have worked for me. Um, you definitely, you know, you got the big ones there. I do think avoiding sugar, not drinking soda all day, uh, limiting your screen time, those are super crucial to just feeling generally healthy. I, I do think that um, sort of uh, being online runs directly opposite of feeling good in your head. And uh, the more sort of comments you read, the more you scroll through Instagram or whatever your poison of choice is, the less healthy you're likely to feel. And I think that this is kind of a universal human thing. So, uh, you know, I definitely recommend limiting those things. Um, I would also check these gummies you're chowing down on. I'm, I'm guessing these are probably CBD or something like that. Uh, check the sugar content on those things because holy hell, do they really load those things up. The other thing is, I, I know I'm being completely hypocritical here because I don't do it. Uh, exercise is really important. I don't think you can necessarily control all the stressors in your life. People have jobs that, you know, infuse stress into them. They have families or situations bigger than themselves that create stress. But I do think you can take action to counterbalance that. And exercise is absolutely one of those uh, counterbalances. For me, if I'm really like feeling particularly volcanic, which thankfully hasn't happened in a long time, I, I, I feel like my current life is pretty, uh, you know, I don't want to say stress-free, but has the right kind of stress in it. Um, I would go outside and chop wood. And I would do it until I was just completely exhausted. That is an incredible workout. And if you feel enraged, just hacking some logs and perfectly splitting them, uh, there is 
an incredible therapeutic value to that. And now your um, access to lumber and the forest may vary based on where you are, but um, I definitely recommend something like physically exerting that lets you sort of express rage. Very good way to, uh, you know, get some endorphins going. Okay, now we're heading into diver territory. Everybody seems obsessed with this idea of him being on the horizon, which, just a reminder, I have not committed to yet. Uh, First up is Jeremy Price. Does diver come with a removable helmet and a secondary head underneath, or is the helmet solid? If not removable, will diver, uh, with diver, have you ever thought or plan on creating a figure that features a removable helmet? Um... So the current model of diver that I'm looking at right now is a solid sort of head. Uh, I have done sort of sketches and and brainstorming of it being removable or fitting on, uh, you know, a sort of inner head. Um, Whether or not that's going to happen depends on a lot of factors that I have not decided on yet. Part of this idea of a sort of three-tiered fundraising means we're very quick and dirty about the figures we're doing with very small goals and we're not dwelling on a single sculpt for too long. We're trying to sort of create this trio um, or beyond and individually we don't want to like spend too much time unlocking bonuses for a single figure. We just kind of want to like turn and burn it, get it done, get it off to the factory and uh, have them start production. Um, I sort of need to decide for myself, uh, do I want to sort of just have Diver be this thing that's locked in place already, and the benefit of that means I know what it is, we can send it to the factory, we can get it started, we can get it in people's hands quicker, or do I want to spend a lot of time tweaking and changing and adjusting, which has been kind of the fate of Chromega which, uh, you know, has not entered production yet, but is probably only a few days away from that happening. So, uh, you know, I don't have an answer. Uh, There are scenarios I have put pen to paper on for, you know, different helmet solutions, let's say. Regarding the second part of the question, uh, I definitely want to do removable helmets on characters It takes a lot more time in post-production to get those things right. Um, I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know when I'll have the luxury to kind of uh, have a long time to to test out and print out and, you know, keep sort of uh, feeling my way around um, additional, uh, you know, sort of troubleshooting that would be required for this. So it's on my sort of short list of things to accomplish at some point. Um, I don't, as of today, like know what that, what the first time I would accomplish this at production would be. But uh, it's definitely something I'm interested in. Next up, Ian Amling. Diver follow-up question. I've seen one image of Diver. Is there a story to complement the image, or is he slash she the Toy Pizza equivalent of Boba Fett? I'm referring to the Diver to the Boba Fett that was shrouded in mystique and only had three minutes of screen time in Empire. Um, I would say that um, the Diver... No, there's no there's no story, there's no character there. It is a blank slate in my mind. Uh, it is sort of a occupation, and I think I know the different theaters that occupation would occur in. Some of them surprising, some of them pretty easy to surmise based on its look and its function. Uh, but I do not, I have not sort of uh, infused it with a story yet. And I don't know that I will until I know if this character is a reality, if we're going to make it together or not. So um, that may seem excruciating for some creative people to have those things not defined. Uh, but that is kind of, you know, the operation I have going here. A good example of that is uh, General Q. I had no idea that character existed. Those parts have been sitting in my workshop for 
probably close to two years. And uh, it all just came together and wrote itself. And then, of course, uh, the great Gavin Mackey sort of added his little embellishments in the storyline as well. So, um, yeah, Diver is a complete blank slate. It could go any way. It could be any gender. could have any sexual preference. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. Next up, question from Matt Connolly. How well do the Sen 5 legs work on a vector jump torso? I like the idea of a VJ chunky jump. Uh, also need some 3D astronaut helmets. Can you pair me with a squire who has printed them? Uh, talk to Matthew Paquette. I believe he's still offering print-on-demand services. Uh, he only charges uh, what he needs for materials and labor, which I think is really great. And he has sent me a set of them recently. They are beautiful. He, he truly, truly has taken to this 3D printing uh, game. He, he's good at it. Um, no, the Sen 5 legs do not necessarily work with vector jump. There's a couple different things working against this. One, this is a chunkier, thicker figure than our sort of standard knight. Now, what you could do is sort of take the thighs and the boots of Sen 5 and plug it into the classic knight crotch piece. And it kind of works, but to me it doesn't look that seamless. Um, the sort of upper legs, the thighs, do not plug into the boots of the vector jump because they are much wider and they do not fit into the uh, relatively small sort of circular area at the top of the boots of the VJ. So, um, you know, I I'm sure some people will find creative ways around this, but Sen 5 is really part of the Thick Boy quadrilogy. They're meant to kind of work together. There is some creative crossplay with earlier smaller figures, but generally they are kind of a closed system onto themselves. Moving along to Daniel Hartzler, uh, who has done some great job with the Knight of the Slice Wikipedia, by the way. Everybody should give Daniel a big thank you. He's done a great job of uh, keeping track of a lot of the bits and bops of Knights of the Slice. Uh, pardon me if this has been asked before. He is new to Patreon. Welcome, by the way. Uh, is or was Bumblejet one of Saima's bugmen? This is a fantastic question, and I had never thought of this until you asked it. So I think... Uh, I can only say not that I know of and that we do know Bumblejet is a polymorph which is a specific type of extraterrestrial humanoid that can shape shift and can change its form and that is extremely important because we're about to meet another polymorph and uh, that is going to have some huge ramifications for everything uh, in the world of Knights of the Slice. Also, by the way, guys, uh, work has begun on the final chapter of Turbo Atoll. I saw the first page this morning of pencils by the Nobby Wood, and they are fantastic. Uh, for those who remember, chapter four and chapter five are kind of being combined, combined into one gigantic chapter four. Um, I think he's on target to be finished by May, which means conceivably, this could be off to the printer shortly thereafter, which means June could be the finale of Turbo Atoll and the final drop for Turbo Atoll and the story will be complete and you will know everything. And uh, that is pretty damn exciting, honestly. If we can lap, uh, if we can get through this last lap, hit the finish line, see the checkered flag and put an end finally to Turbo Atoll, uh, it's going to be a glorious time. Also, I did see a early work in progress of the final cover by Ian Amling, and this is Ian's finest work yet. Uh, even in its incomplete state, this is a powerful, powerful piece of art. Um, I, I just love seeing all the pieces start to come together on this. I, I'm very excited to head to print on this book. I want it to be done. We have a lot of stories to tell after Turbo Atoll. And uh, this is going to be the end of a, a, you know, an important era. And I'm excited. You guys should be too. Seems people also have Hacker Man on their mind. Uh, coming in, Jonathan Ortiz has this to say. 
You have quite the eye for color, combos, and mixing hues. The Hong Kong Hacker Man works so well. When you have a color concept for a figure in mind, does the factory make the color you're going for, or do you have to choose from what plastic colors the factory has available? Um, it's kind of both, but generally they're taking direction from me. Now, I can make my job and their job much easier by referencing plastics that have already been used, that I have sample chips for, that we know the vendors uh, that sell them. Uh, so, you know, you have to sort of tactically approach every design as best you can. I, I have this blue tray full of plastic chips from uh, previous colors that I've run. And so if I can just reference that chip and match it with a Pantone color, that is uh, the path of least resistance for sure. Now, there are specialty hues I want to achieve. Recently, uh, we introduced a new one, which I call a sort of fire orange. Uh, or fire ice and this is the sort of bright bright saturated orange that is featured on the ice rat uh, two-pack so um, sometimes I will send them pieces of plastic from other toys that I find or uh, you know I could send them a piece of sea glass and they'll do their best to match uh, the hues to that so um, you know it, it's kind of uh, it depends on what I'm going for, but generally, I like to think that the color combos I come up with, they are able to translate pretty damn well. Um, you know, I, I think Hong Kong Hacker Man is an, a good achievement in terms of color theory. I, I've always been really focused on color theory. Um, it, it's part of the reason I try to avoid doing homages or doing this sort of s standard default Glios world colorways, you know, I really think that the story I'm telling is in part communicated through the color selection. So I, I, I thank you for that compliment. It is something that I spend a large portion of my brain power on. I really want this to look and feel like its own thing and like something unique. Quentin Russo chimes in here. I agree. Hawk, uh, Hong Kong Hacker Man is awesome. I think a yellow Hacker Man with pink or light orange deco might take things up a notch. Perhaps a Mustard Hacker Man. Any thoughts? Maybe give him a cape. Mustard Man, Pimento Man. I digress. Pizza out. Thank you, Quentin. Um, you know, I hadn't thought of a, a sort of Mustard-style Hacker Man, but now that you say it, like, that could be really awesome. And I am at an interesting point where I do need to sit down and I start. I need to order the second wave of Hacker Man because uh, there's one more Hacker Man style left you guys have not seen. And from that point, I'm out of Hackerman. So uh, at long last, it's time to order more of them. And I got to start building that uh, cadre of villains. I got to figure out um, which ones are going to kind of uh, look best and do the job. So um, that's not a bad one to put in my brain at this time. I might even do a little color test on that. Speak of the devil, Matthew Paquette is here. Uh, hopefully... He is still offering his 3D printing services. Guys should uh, reach out and discuss with him. Uh, is the head and chest for General Q and the alt head for Food Wars Saima from the, the Action Figure of the Month Dust Saima, or is it from a, another yet-to-be-released Saima? I do believe this is from Dust, uh, which shows you guys how long I will often sit on parts uh, until the character kind of speaks to me and I know what I need to do with it. So yeah, I, uh, to the best of my memory, those are the alternate parts to Saima Dust, and uh, you can now kind of complete the entire look. Keep in mind though, because uh, we're, we're going to get into this a lot this year, that not a, sometimes there are multiple tools that make up an entire figure, and it's best to not think of a figure as being complete only with all of those pieces. And Saima's a good example. I debuted her with, uh, I think, three different tools worth of accessories. Gave you guys sort of mega deluxe versions. And then those pieces went off to be used elsewhere and run at different times. So just a reminder that the um, first presentation of a character and all of the pieces are not necessarily how it is produced every single time. 
uh, lots of times those second tools and, and accessories are run separately or not at all. Okay, final round of questions before we head out. Gabe Tovar, uh, did I happen to see the latest Mortal Kombat movie? Uh, I did, and I gotta tell you, I really loved it. <laughs> it is not a good movie. It's it's sort of a, a good, bad movie. Uh, very entertaining, very enjoyable. I saw First Day in the theater, the original Mortal Kombat, and uh, it just did what it was supposed to do. It knew what it was, right? And, and you gotta give a lot of respect to films that do that. Um, I think Kong vs. Godzilla and then Mortal Kombat, these have been just generally fun films that don't require any brain power, and you just sit back and enjoy them, and it's a spectacle, and they've been a welcome sort of escape from, uh, you know, the state of the world, but in a bigger sense, uh, movies have become really unfun, uh, they've all become pretty homogenized, so it's nice to just see these little, uh, you know, middle-of-the-road films that, that aren't trying to be everything to everybody. They aren't trying to be woke. They just are putting on a show, and I think that's pretty great. And my animals are revolting right now. Moving along, Max G. Who was the artist that made the Welcome to Pangaea Island flyer that comes with the glow-in-the-dark dinos? They absolutely nailed the feeling of an older ad meant to get you interested in the rest of the line. Uh, that was the great Gavin Mackey. And yes, folks... When you get your Glow Dino, there is a free fold-out flyer slash poster. So, enjoy. Moving along, Lance Tomimoto. Favorite Jake Busey movie, Frighteners or Starship Troopers? Very difficult choice. I would agree. Those are both pretty fantastic, uh, sometimes um, underappreciated films. I guess... Uh, well, Bo's got to weigh in on, on his opinion here. But my guess is... Um, Frighteners is probably a better Jake Busey movie because he has more to do in it. Uh, he's really fantastic in both these films and a pretty talented actor. Final question from Ian Amling. Did I find Duke, the one that I lost in the river? Uh, no, he is still missing. I do think I will have some success when the water level goes down, as it does during the summer. Um, there's been a lot of rain up here, so the stream is pretty full at the moment. Hopefully, I can locate him, unlike... That uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson Fast and the Furious minifigure I lost a few years ago now that has never turned up. Actually, quite a few figures have, have uh, reached that fate. Uh, but in any case, that's the Stazapod for today. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Pizza out.